Welcome to Lecture 7 in our series on the Trial of Jesus, our last lecture, The Crucifixion. In Lecture 6, we left off with Jesus at the Praetorium, where Pilate had given in to fear and decided to sentence Jesus to death by crucifixion. In this, our last lecture, we take up the details of the sentence, again, drawing on what we know from history about crucifixion, when it was practiced, why it was done, how it was done. We also look at how these details may have been reflected in Jesus' own crucifixion. And we look at some of the figures he meets along the way. And finally, we'll talk about the day, the day that is Jesus died on, or might have died on, and why we're really not sure what day he died on, yet anyhow, although whatever day it was still had powerful significance. Death by crucifixion was one of those things that was commonly done throughout the ancient world, but rarely discussed. There are brief references here and there to it, which explain why people didn't like talking about it. The great Roman orator Cicero called it, quote, a most cruel and disgusting penalty. The great Roman statesman and philosopher Seneca referred to it as the accursed tree. And our own Josephus, who was more than just a historian, but a fearless Jewish general, capable of inflicting savage treatment on his enemies, called it the most pitiable of deaths. When one was crucified, they became crow food, in the words of one Roman writer, and more often than not, its victims went insane, screaming and crying in pain and helplessness, as dogs and beasts would ravage their lower extremities, and ravens would perch on their shoulders and pluck their eyes out. The first recorded reference of it being done was in 700 BC, when the Athenians began executing pirates this way. About 300 years later, in 400 BC, the Greeks started spreading the use of it throughout their region. 200 years after that, the Romans, ever the best copycats of things Greek, started employing its use as a punishment for the lower classes, slaves, foreigners, but never for citizens. There was a hit play running in Rome, The Crucified Bandit, sometime in the 30s or before, where a real bandit would be cast in the role of a fictionalized bandit and then be crucified on stage. I mean, really crucified. It wasn't terribly funny, even to them. Nor of the stories of soldiers assigned to a crucifixion scene who would get distracted by girls and find the man taken down and have to figure out who to replace him with lest it be him for his dereliction of duty. In 4 BC, to quell a Jewish uprising, the Roman general Varus lined the roads with 2,000 crucified Jewish rebels. A distance of only 30 years would not have been long enough to erase the memory of that scene from those alive at the time of Jesus or their descendants who lived within earshot. We forget how piercing Jesus' comment was to his followers that they were to, quote, pick up their crosses and follow him. Wait, really? The form of crucifixion has come down to us in art looking at, well, as a cross. But the Romans weren't terribly particular about the form of it. There are crosses in the form of a T or an X and of a plus sign. The cross we're familiar with, known as the Latin cross, has its shape not due to art, but due to scripture. Matthew records, quote, they put up above his head, end quote, the charge against him. In other words, 
They needed room for the placard. The account of Jesus actually carrying his cross on the way to Calvary is consistent with other crucifixion accounts, as the condemned were often forced to carry the instruments of their death on their way to execution. They did not, however, carry the full cross. The practice seems to have been that they would carry only the cross beam, called the patibulum, which would be mounted on a steep bay, that is, the vertical piece standing in the ground, perhaps permanently there for convenience. Soldiers might then bind the condemned's arms to the cross beam and lift him up and the beam up by forked poles onto the vertical beam, where sometimes a seat called a sedil was included, or even a footrest. Don't think these were added for comfort. They were specifically designed to make the agony longer. We know very few details about the form of Jesus' crucifixion. The Gospels don't say anything about the form of his cross, how he was affixed by nails or tied, or even the amount of pain he endured. Again, the writers were unconcerned with these details as they were unconcerned with the details of his trials. We have some inferences we can make from other sources. How high was his cross, for example? Well, we know that a reed was needed to raise wine to his lips, so what, seven feet, shall we say? Was he nailed or tied to the cross? Well, the risen Christ asked his disciples to see my hands and feet. He didn't ask them to look for rope burns. And to the extent Psalm 22 was fulfilled, that psalm says, they have pierced my hands and my feet. That wouldn't have happened with rope. So, yes, the collateral sources indicate nails. How many nails then were used? We have no idea from history. Early Christian art shows four nails, one for each extremity. St. Helena, Constantine's mother, came to Jerusalem in part for an archaeological purpose to some 300 years later, and she believed she had found three nails after inspiration through prayer and miracles attributed to them. Tradition seems to have accepted three nails since then. But the Romans weren't terribly picky, and there was no crucifixion manual they always turned to. If you had a rope, tie him up. If you had some spikes, use those. If the limbs might tear loose from the spikes, use rope too. Just get her done. In 1968, excavators in northeast Jerusalem found a first century crucifixion victim with a nail going through the side of a heel bone, indicating another variation on the theme, just when you thought it couldn't be more uncomfortable. Normally, assuming there's anything normal about this, the nail would wedge deep in the foot bone where it would support the weight of the body. As long as we're talking about hands and nails, I might offer just a few more tidbits. Early Christian art shows crucifixion through the hands, but that was long before people discovered that nailed hands will not support the weight of the body. The wrist was the best area, right between the radius and the ulna, as that would be sufficient. On the other hand, as National Geographic found in studying the issue, hands could support a body if the hands were nailed and the arms were tied. Those who insist on the hands theory also cite to Thomas's declaration that he won't believe in Christ's resurrection until he sees Jesus's hands. Sorry, say scriptural exegetes. The term for hand could also be used to describe the area of the wrist. Ping pong. What does the Shroud of Turin have to say about the issue? Wrists. No question about it. Case closed. Well, or is it? How about stigmatis? Those handful of mystics throughout the history 
have borne the wounds of Christ in their flesh? Where do they manifest their wounds? In their wrists, right? No, not always. Some appear in the hands. St. Francis's stigmata had nails protruding from his hands. In the 1960s, St. Padre Pio of Petrolicina oozed blood from the middle of his hands. And so, I think we're about done with this topic. Shall we get back to Jesus? One of the people mentioned in the Gospels along Jesus' way to Calvary is Simon, a Cyrenian. He's mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He was coming in from the agros, which means field or country. He was pressed into service, which suggests he was not quite a Tennessee volunteer, at least initially. His name is Greek, so some think he was Greek. But John mentions a Cyrenian synagogue in Jerusalem, so maybe he was Jewish. We know the names of two of his boys, but that doesn't help much. Alexander is a Greek name, while Rufus is a Roman name. Dad gets one name, Mom the other. Given Dad's appellation, he seems to have been born and raised in Cyrene, which is the area known in modern times as Libya. Simon the Libyan is what we should call him. Having him come in from the fields at about noon works well with another detail yet to discuss, because work ceased at noon on Passover Eve. He thought he was getting off early, only to find he had to help with some damn crucifixion on the way home. That Simon's name and his boy's names, though, are preserved in Scripture, indicates he must have been quite moved by the unpaid overtime work he had to do. There's another figure on the way the cross commonly mentioned, but her name comes not from Scripture or history, but entirely from tradition and those 4th century apocryphal works, Veronica, Veronica, a word known as a portmanteau because it's derived from what the person is known for, not their name. She was the one whom legend had it wiped the face of Christ with a cloth, and he in turn left his vera, icon, that is, his true image, his Veronica, on it. What I like about the story is the many forms or identity it takes thereafter. The so-called Acts of Pilate say she was the woman of Scripture who had an issue of blood until she ch touched the hem of Jesus' cloak in a crowd, and that she had cured Tiberius of an illness with a cloth and gave it to Pope St. Clement. Others say she was the wife of Zacchaeus, who evangelizes France. Others say she was really Martha, the sister of Lazarus. Others say she was the princess of Edessa, where a leper king was reportedly healed after touching a cloth connected to Christ. We just don't know, but that hasn't stopped people from imagining plenty of details about her. And the veil itself has its own interesting history. A Jesuit priest claims to have discovered it in the Italian Abbey of Monopolo, in 1999, having traced a remarkable chain of custody at least since the early 8th century. It also bears similarity to the image on the Shroud of Turin. Who knows what science may reveal about it someday. At the site of the crucifixion, we meet two other individuals. Their names come to us as Dismas and Gestus, again from the so-called Pilate. The Gospels don't give us their names, but their crimes. They were lestai, that same word applied to Barabbas, bandits, or robbers. Assuming they were robbers, they got what was coming to them, at least under Roman law. Unlike Jesus, they had done something that threatened public safety. Remember our discussion about Pilate's docket that morning? Well, we at least know he had two other criminal trials to hear that day, 
It may have helped account for the six-hour span between the opening of Jesus' case and its closing around noon. At least two other cases were going on at the same time. Notably, they had no friends in the crowd to clamor for their release in lieu of Barabbas. One of them, however, got a superior release that afternoon. On asking Jesus if he could join him in his kingdom, Jesus assured him he'd be with them in paradise, quote, that day. Golgotha was the site of Jesus' execution. Near the city, says John, and outside the gate, says the letter to the Hebrews, and it looked like a little hill in the form of a skull, which is why it was called the Hill of the Skull, too. Most people seem to agree that it was a site outside the city walls and west of the Temple Mount, a site pretty much where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre now stands. The Emperor Hadrian helped identify that site about a hundred years later because he built a temple to Aphrodite over that spot, intending to defile it. Dear Hadrian, thank you for letting us know where Calvary was. As new owners of the property in question, we shall be conducting demolition and renovation activity there shortly. John says there were four soldiers under the command of a centurion who led Jesus to Golgotha. They were probably excited because they were going to get new clothes that day, a perk you got for being assigned to crucifixion duty. By all appearances, it was in their union contract. The soldiers assigned to these duties got by right the condemned man's clothes. When they got to the crucifixion site, Matthew tells us, they parted his garments among them, casting lots. Lots, you may be interested to know, were little tablets made of wood or rock and were used like dice. You'd throw them into an urn or maybe a soldier's helmet and then draw them out at random to see who was the winner. It's an odd scene, to be sure, to see grown men playing games to wait out someone's agonizing death, letting them watch you divide up their belongings before their eyes. We just aren't used to thinking about such barbaric treatment and forget the indignity of it on so many levels. And thus we're numb to the accompanying passage that says this even fulfilled the prophecy in Psalm 22 that, quote, for my vestures they cast lots. Yes, the vestures were something that perhaps his mother had made for him and who was standing right nearby them and could have claimed them without having to cast lots for them. Or maybe some other dear soul bought them for him or gave them to him as a precious gift and now became some rogue soldier's. Typically, a Jewish male's garments would have included a head covering, sandals, belt, outer garment, and inner garment that, as John notes, was richly symbolic as it was seamless. He was standing there. He could see it. He could see the significance of the non-tearing of a priestly, seamless inner robe. He could see the first four items were distributed among four soldiers. It was the last item they gambled for. Someone became a real winner and went away with two items. There's always been some quiet concern over whether Jesus was crucified naked. It's true that nakedness was a typical part of the punishment. The Romans knew how to humiliate people in the worst way possible. But most historians believe that this practice was not observed in Palestine. The Jews were strongly protective against public nudity. Go back to the book of Genesis and recall what happened to Ham when he happened to see his drunken father Noah naked. Naked crucifixions were probably a bridge just too far for the Romans to take, so most people think, no, he was not crucified naked and that he had some kind of covering. 
If Pilate thought he could go to lunch after issuing Jesus' sentence on the judgment seat at noon, it was not without subsequent interruption. Pilate, it appears, was busy all afternoon. First, he had to meet with aggrieved Jewish leaders over some signage. He had ordered a placard to be placed over Jesus' head saying, quote, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And he had it written in three languages, Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, to make sure everyone understood it. He must have thought it was funny. A funny insult to the Jews, but at Jesus' expense, of course. And yet another instance of his competitive edge to get back at them after they got him. The leaders evidently saw it at the crucifixion site and saw Pilate's joke at them. They walked back to the praetorium to complain to Pilate about it. How dare you say he was the king of the Jews? Well, most emphatically, they had a point. Jesus was not the king of the Jews in any temporal sense. Pilate was pulling their chains and calling them that, and he obviously enjoyed pulling them. He dismissed their complaints and said, I have written what I have written, which is to say, you forced my hand, you can go to hell. By the way, I'm going to pause here and rag on idiot scripture naysayers who like to point to this instance in scripture and say, look, the Gospels can't even agree on a simple point about Jesus' signage. Four different accounts are offered. Ha ha. Look, jackasses, there are four different accounts, but there are not four inconsistent accounts. Mark and Luke record the signage as saying, the king of the Jews. John says, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And Mark says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. You put them all together and you get, quote, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. None of the shorter versions said it was the only words on the sign, so give me a break. I might mention, however, that there are some textual issues that drive scholars crazy. When John is describing who's at the foot of the cross, he says there was his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Note how, when I read that, pausing to give the force of good old Oxford commas, you were thinking of four people, Jesus' mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. The ancient text has no commas, and so we don't know whether Mary's sister is one individual or descriptive words about Mary, the wife of Clopas. And the other Gospels don't help because they had different people. Matthew and Mark posit Mary, the mother of James and Joseph there. Matthew also adds the mother of James and John. She's that wonderful figure who not long before insisted that Jesus place her boys at his right and left when he becomes king. Mark refers to someone named Salome. Does he mean the same woman? If he means someone different, then that means we've got three Marys there, which is also interesting because two are sisters, or cousins, as we may assume, as they have the same first name. So it's just not clear who was who and who was there. Look, people, just use Oxford commas and you won't have these ambiguities. Back to Pilate. Some three hours after he had given the judgment, someone came to him and told him that Jesus had died. Pilate expressed surprise. With that news, or separately, someone else reminded him that the bodies needed to be taken down before the Sabbath, because evening was coming on and everyone would have to wait a day before they could do anything, like dress them for burial and bury them. Pilate said, sure. So he gave an order, which made its way to the centurion in charge at Golgotha, 
who knew an easy way to make sure the crucified men would die. You break their legs. Breaking legs was common in crucifixions because it was a further act of pain for onlookers to see and to be deterred from ever doing anything close to what that poor SOB had done. Plus, it would finish the criminals off. Most deaths occurred by asphyxiation, as the crucified lost the strength to push himself up for air by his nailed feet, an act made impossible when the legs were crushed by a sledgehammer. Asphyxiation would occur in minutes. This is exactly what happened to Dismas and Gestus. But not to Jesus, as the centurion could see he was already dead and decided to thrust a spear in his side for good measure. Another requester appeared on Pilate's steps that afternoon, Joseph of Arimathea, who, as we saw, may have been at the trial before the Sanhedrin. Luke makes sure to tell us that Joseph, quote, had not consented to their decision and action. Joseph wanted permission to have Jesus' body so he could prepare it for burial and put it in his own tomb. That's very nice of him to come to this guy's aid, Pilate must have thought. And where was he this morning when I could have used him to help me let this guy go? And alive! Meanwhile, Joseph is thinking, I've been up for 36 hours straight and I have to ask this guy's permission to get a dead body so I can bury him in my tomb? And while Arimathea was getting Pilate's permission to have the body, his friend Nicodemus was out getting burial materials for it. John says he brought, quote, about 100 pounds of myrrh and aloes, myrrh being a kind of hardened sap from a myrrh tree, aloes being not the cacti plant we're mostly familiar with, but shavings from a sandalwood tree. 100 Roman pounds, that is, which is about 73 of our pounds, a Roman pound equaling 11.5 ounces. The point, though, is that the amount was lavish. It was appropriate for a royal burial, as befitting as Mary of Bethany's jar of ointment, worth one year of wages she spent on him just a few days before the odor of which was still probably detectable on his presence. Truly, their generosity was overwhelming on simple human terms, and they acted in haste, intending to come back after the Sabbath to do it all right. I wonder if Nicodemus got a return on his purchases. Arimathea was not the only one to bug Pilate after the crucifixion. The next day, the chief priests and the Pharisees showed up at his door asking for something, what now, Pilate must have thought. They were concerned about the security of the tomb, they said. Fine, you want someone to guard a dead man? You can have him. He ordered a custodial guard at the tomb. He should have also told the guard to bring a diaper with him. He'd need it the next morning. I suppose even Pilate had to appreciate the importance of preventing Jesus' followers from stealing his body and then claiming fraudulently he had done something like, quote, rise from the dead. Meanwhile, I'm sure the chief priests and Pharisees were still seething. This is our land. These are our people. These are our laws. This was our criminal. And we have to defer to you? They had a point, too. But I wonder what they thought on Sunday morning as they were getting started on their work week, the equivalent of our Monday the chief priests and the Pharisees must have gnashed their teeth at the theft of a body. What did Pilate do? Cut up a chicken and stare at its entrails? This is as good a place as any to finish off Pilate, what we know about him. Sometime in or about 36 or 37 AD, 
a pseudo-prophet gathered a bunch of followers at the foot of Mount Gerizim in Samaria, an area about 40 to 50 miles north of Jerusalem, which is where, in parable theory, good Samaritans lived. Pilate sent a detachment of troops there, and as often happens when you mix anxious troops and emotional crowds, bad things happen. I'm going to read you this extended account from Josephus. I'll let you know when I'm done with it. The Samaritan nation, too, was not exempt from disturbance. For a man who made light of mendacity and in all his designs catered to the mob, rallied them, bidding them go in a body with him to Mount Gerizim, which in their belief is the most sacred of mountains. He assured them that on their arrival he would show them the sacred vessels which were buried there, where Moses had deposited them. His hearers, viewing this tale as plausible, appeared in arms. They posted themselves in a certain village named Taranatha, and as they planned to climb the mountain in a great multitude, they welcomed to their ranks the new arrivals who kept coming. But before they could ascend, Pilate blocked their projected route up the mountain with a detachment of cavalry and heavily armed infantry, who, in an encounter with the first comers in the village, slew some in a pitched battle and put the others to flight. Many prisoners were taken, of whom Pilate put to death the principal leaders and those who were most influential among the fugitives. When the uprising had been quelled, the council of the Samaritans went to Vitellius, a man of consular rank, who was governor of Syria, and charged Pilate with the slaughter of the victims. For, they said, it was not as rebels against the Romans, but as refugees from the persecution of Pilate that they had met in Tirathena. Vitellius thereupon dispatched Marcellus, one of his friends, to take charge of the administration of Judea, and ordered Pilate to return to Rome to give the emperor his account of the matters with which he was charged by the Samaritans. And so Pilate, after having spent ten years in Judea, hurried to Rome in obedience to the orders of Vitellius, since he could not refuse. But before he reached Rome, Tiberius had already passed away. End of the passage from the Jewish Antiquities. In short, a skirmish broke out, and those with swords won, and many Samaritans were killed. The Samaritans as a whole were furious. After all we've done to help you against the Jews, they fumed. So they complained to the Syrian governor Vitellius, who had a superior role to Pilate, and he ordered Pilate to go to Rome to account for his actions. Pilate did, probably by ship, and while he was on his way there, Tiberius died. March 16, 37 AD. This is where Sejanus pops back up in the story, because Tiberius had executed him six years earlier, and Pilate, who must have seemed to have been devoted to Sejanus, was probably wondering what was in store for him. Would he be swimming with the fishes, as they say? Whether he got to Rome or not before Tiberius died, we don't know. But either way, it must have been a long boat ride there. At this point, Pilate becomes lost in history, but he's been regenerated through the most amazing and diverse legends thereafter. I commend to your reading a book on him by the British writer Anne Rowe, as she not only mines from history as much as we can know about him, but she also retells the many stories about him, his suicide, his banishment, his execution, his martyrdom, and his simple retirement in a villa in Gaul. The second-century church father, Tertullian, said he had the heart of a Christian. His name appears as a baptismal name by the Coptic church in the 6th and 7th centuries, 
But that appears to be explainable by a rash of anti-Semitism occurring then. You really don't see many babies being baptized in the name of Pontius Pilate anymore, and for good reason. And it's not because we don't know his first name. The Abyssinian church pushes things by giving Pilate and his wife an actual feast day. The Greek church maintains it only for Claudia. Conversely, he's also regarded as a doomed sinner, exiled to Vienne or to Lausanne, or that he haunts Mount Pilatus in Lucerne or other remote regions in southern Germany, and people say those places have been really spooky since then. He's mentioned in the earliest creeds of the Christian faith, a declaration that Jesus, quote, suffered under Pontius Pilate in recognition that Jesus died at a definite point in history. Pilate fixes Jesus' death in time. It was a rebuke to those who thought that God's appearance on earth was really an illusion and that God could not really take a man's body and did not really die. Yep, he did, said the church, after due consideration and debate. Pilate is the only mortal mentioned in the creed other than the Virgin Mary. Caiaphas and the high priests may have been the driving agents in Jesus' death, but it was Pilate who drove the final nails home, so to speak. While we finished off Pilate, we haven't yet come to Jesus' end here. For 2,000 years, people have reflected on the life and death of Jesus, both as a historical figure as well as a divine figure. His moments on the cross have offered something to ponder for all people at all times, and I'm not going to try and unpack those here. But I want to address one last subject because it's also a historical subject, and it's one that's perplexed historians and theologians since then. On what day did Jesus die? You'd think that'd be clear. No, I'm afraid it isn't. Does it matter? Some say no. Some say it might. I want to introduce you to that historical issue because whether or not you think it matters, I think you'll find it interesting. You may be thinking, why is this an issue? Of course we know he died on a Friday. That's why we have Good Friday. And of course we know that Thursday night was Passover because that's when he celebrated the Last Supper. And now, stop. I want you to hold it right there. Hit that pause button. Was Passover Thursday night? If so, it seemed that all we have to do is wind back the calendar far enough, check the astrological charts, and voila, there's our date. What's the problem? Well, the problem is that the Gospels appear to give us different days for this event. What, say you? Yes, say I, and you know it too. Just haven't been paying attention when you've read or heard the Gospel accounts before. Let's start with the Gospel text, then we're going to do a little exploring. Three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, remember, they're called synoptics because they have a common structure and content, suggest that Passover was on Thursday night. Here's their reference with more or less the same language. Quote, And on the first day of the unleavened bread, when they were sacrificing the Pasch, I'm going to use that term Pasch because that's the direct translation of the term, and it refers primarily to the Paschal feast although it's also used to refer to the day of Passover. So when they were sacrificing the Pasch, quote, his disciples said to him, Where do you wish that having gone away, we shall prepare in order that you may eat the Pasch? Okay, here's our second reference. Two disciples go to Jerusalem to find a guest room for Jesus to eat the Pasch. Here's our third reference. And when the hour came, 
he sat at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this pasch with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I shall not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So the clear implication is that Jesus and his disciples were making preparations for and then celebrating the Paschal meal on the night before Jesus died, and that therefore Thursday night was Passover. Now let's turn to the Gospel of John. And don't tell me you haven't heard these four passages before. First, when Pilate brought Jesus out and sat on the judgment seat, John says it was the preparation day for the Pasch. Same word. Second, he says, the Jewish leaders refused to enter the praetorium, lest they be defiled, and in order that they might eat the Pasch. Third, the Jewish leaders asked Pilate for permission to break the legs of those crucified to prevent their bodies from remaining on the cross because, as he says, it was the day of preparation for the Pasch. Fourth, they hurriedly laid Jesus in the tomb because it was, again, the preparation day for the Pasch. So get it? John's saying that Passover is Friday evening. The synoptics are saying, or at least suggesting, that Passover was the night before, Thursday evening. How do we understand this, if at all we need to? Let's back up and see if we can figure it out. Let's go back in time a bit, as the old spiritual goes, way back to Egypt land. That's where the Jews were held as slaves. That's where God told Moses to tell the Pharaoh to let my people go. That's where Pharaoh refused, and so God sent plagues to convince him. The last one being a plague that would kill the firstborn male of every household, unless that household prepared a meal a certain way, killing a year-old male lamb without blemish, sprinkling its blood on the doorposts, roasting it whole, and eating it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, and doing that, the angel of death would pass over that home and spare the firstborn male from death. After Moses led the Hebrew children out of Egypt and into the Sinai Desert, God told Moses that his people needed to celebrate this event as a perpetual institution that would stand at the head of their calendar, which began with the month of Nisan, their January, as it were. Their calendar began with the new moon and was not a solar calendar like ours is, which meant their month lasted about 28 days. And they reckon their days as starting at sundown eve and ending at the next sundown eve. Sundown to sundown was their day. Halfway through the month, the 14th, would be the full moon, and that would mark the Feast of Passover. Forever. Nisan 14 would always be at full moon. It was at the same time when the Levitical laws were recorded that the Jews also celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread to celebrate the barley harvest on the 15th day of Nisan. That feast went on for seven days, unlike Passover, which was a one-day feast. But over the centuries thereafter, and by 1st century BC, the two feasts got merged and were celebrated together, so that the feast began with Passover and was extended over seven days by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's why you'll see these feasts mentioned sometimes interchangeably in the Gospels. So here's the conundrum we began with. When was Nisan 14, or 15, in relation to Jesus' death? Was it Thursday evening or Friday evening? 
We know at least this much. Jesus died on a Friday. All four Gospels, including John's, say Jesus died on the day before the Sabbath, which is the day we call Friday. Matthew, the day after Jesus' death is the Sabbath. Mark, Jesus dies on the day before the Sabbath. Luke, Sabbath was drawing after Jesus' death. John, the bodies were removed because of the oncoming Sabbath. So on what day was the Last Supper? Was it on Nisan 13, that is on Thursday evening through Friday? Or was it on Nisan 14, Friday evening through Saturday, the Sabbath? Scholars approach this issue and tend to divide by focusing on these two questions. First, was the Last Supper the Paschal meal? Second, if so, was it celebrated on Nisan 14? Let's take the first question. Was the Last Supper a Paschal meal? Well, there are eight textual hints that it was. It was celebrated at night in Jerusalem with the appropriate minimum, 10, with participants reclining, with participants washed and ritually pure, with wine, with the intent to give a gift to the poor, and with a blessing spoke over bread and wine. Some have pointed out one glaring omission, no lamb is mentioned. In any case, there seems to be a consensus of scholars that the answer to this first question is, yes, the Last Supper was a Paschal meal. Not all agree, of course, as some think this dinner was some other dinner, a pre-supper to the Last Supper. It's just too hard to overlook the direct references to the Pasch that we mentioned earlier and those indicia of a Paschal meal in the Gospel accounts. The next question is one on which plenty more scholars divide. Was the Last Supper on Nisan 14? Well, there are 10 textual hints that it was not. That Nisan 14, that is Passover, began on Friday evening, not Thursday evening. First, a crowd came to Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. It's hard to imagine this happening on the biggest feast of the year when everyone is bloated with food and wine. It's like getting up from Thanksgiving dinner and saying, all right, come on, everybody, we got some business to do. Think it might be just a little bit hard to get any volunteers? Second, the Sanhedrin convened a meeting. Under the Mishnah, the Sanhedrin was not allowed to convene a trial during Passover. But as we've cautioned, we don't know whether this rule applied in pre-70s Palestine. On the other hand, perhaps the rule was based on an historical tradition. It doesn't necessarily seem to be the kind of rule that the Sadducees would not have observed. Third, the Sanhedrin and crowds went to see Pilate. Normally, they wouldn't do anything on a feast, much less promote a Roman trial and go riot at it. Fourth, they let Barabbas go. Why would they let him go after the feast? To eat leftovers? Fifth, Simon of Cyrene, as we noted, was coming in from the Agros. Assuming he was a field hand, his arrival would be consistent with work stoppage at noon on the day approaching Passover. We often do the same thing on Christmas and New Year's Eves when they fall on a workday. Sixth, many passerby came by the crucifixion site. It seems like they would have time to do this before the feast started rather than after the feast, especially if they were headed toward the temple to pick up their butchered lambs for dinner. Seventh, burial spices and a linen cloth seemed to have been bought that day. The stores would have been closed on Passover. Eighth, 
Gospels never say anything about whether the arrest plan had gone awry. Remember, they wanted to arrest Jesus, quote, but not on the feast. If their plan had failed, would that have gone unnoticed? Ninth, the Babylonian Talmud explicitly says that Jesus died on Passover Eve. That's one source at any rate. Finally, it just seems that there was too much happening between Thursday evening and Friday evening for it to have been on the solemn feast. No one wants to do anything after Thanksgiving or the Super Bowl, and this was their equivalent on steroids. Would it help, you might ask, if we figure this out from historical sources and triangulate, as it were, from other events or information? Yes, to some extent it does. And we can run through those sources, five of them actually, rather quickly. First, we start with John the Baptist, whom Luke tells us emerged in, quote, the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius. So, what year was that? We know Augustus died on August 19th, 14 AD, and Tiberius began his reign immediately. 15 years from 14 AD gets us to 28 or 29 AD. But there's a catch. You see, Luke was a Syrian, and the Syrians dated the reigns of rulers differently than Romans. Assyrians counted years in relation to their New Year festival, which began on October 1st. It's not unlike how age was calculated in Japan and in other parts of Asia, where you advanced in age after the first of the year. Your age wasn't counted from your birth as such, but as you passed the new year. Similarly to Assyrian, and possibly Luke, Tiberius's first year was only about a month, which pushes his reference a year earlier and puts the emergence of John the Baptist in 27 or 28 AD. Second, recall Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees at what John records was the first Passover in his public ministry. They wanted to know how he could raise the temple in three days when it had taken 46 years to build. Can't we then just go back to the start of the temple and add 46 years? All right, let's try it. According to Josephus, Herod began building the temple in the 18th year of his reign, which we know was 2019 BC. Add 46 years and you get to 2728 AD. That's according to what John says the Pharisees said, and that's now consistent with Luke's reckoning, albeit from a Syrian perspective. The problem is that Josephus gives us a different date when construction on the temple began. He says it began four years earlier than that, in 23 or 22 BC. Add 46 years to that, and that gets you to 23 or 24 AD. But was Josephus thinking of the beginning of construction, like we often do? Or when the plans were drawn up? Or was he thinking of when the work began? We don't know. We've got a range to deal with that could have put us forward 46 years from that date to anywhere between 23 AD and 30 AD. So, not terribly helpful, after all. A third clue is found in the length of Jesus' public ministry. It appears to be three years, because of three Passover references. The Nicodemus Passover, the multiplication of Lowe's Passover, and the last Passover. Yes, we'd think that if Jesus' ministry extended through another Passover, it would have been mentioned because of its centrality to his mission. But it wasn't which indicates a three-year public ministry at most. A fourth clue is a clue we've been wrestling with that comes from the Jewish calendar. 
Passover was on Nisan 14, that's for sure. The question is whether Jesus' Passover was on Nisan 14 or 13. To do that, we look to astronomical data, which you think would be clear, but it's not. And 20th century literature is filled with back and forth arguments from astronomers who've advocated different dates. And just in case you wondered, because of that account in the Gospels that says darkness came over the land at the moment of Jesus' death, and you thought that might be a solar eclipse we could chart back through history, no, solar eclipse would not have, would have been impossible because it was Passover and a full moon was out. You can't have an eclipse during the full moon, and you don't have to be an astronomer to figure that out. If the moon's full, it's because the sun is full on it, and the moon won't be getting in the way of the sun anytime near that cycle. All of which means that whatever darkness existed must have been caused by something else. Intense desert sandstorm is one strong possibility that some have proposed. In 1983, two professors from Oxford, Colin Humphreys and Graeme Waddington, published a detailed study of the astronomical data and the previous controversies surrounding it. And they came up with what appears to be an uncontested range of options on when Nissan 14 and 15 actually occurred. If we take the range of years from 28 to 34, Nissan 14 fell on a Friday twice, one in 30 AD and the other in 33 AD. And Nissan 15 fell on Friday once in 34 AD. No one seems quite enamored of the Nissan 15 theory. That could put Passover on Thursday evening, Friday day, and Jesus' death in 34 AD. That would make Jesus' public ministry to be some five, six, maybe seven years. That just seems too long. And between the other two days, 30 or 33, it all depends on what you think of when Jesus began his public ministry and when he was, quote, about 30 years old. If he began in 27 AD, then 30 would work. If he began later, say in 29 AD, then 33 would work. And trying to figure out his birthday isn't much help. If you accept the gospel accounts that Herod the Great tried to kill him, then he had to be born before Herod died in 4 BC. How much before? Well, long enough for the Holy Family to flee to Egypt and wait until his death. Could have been a couple of months. Could have been a couple years. We don't know. On the other hand, we get the date of Herod's death as 4 BC from Josephus. And some historians have argued that Josephus got his date wrong. Of course, Josephus didn't say B.C., but his descriptions of the length of Herod's reign don't quite coincide with other data, including something that Josephus records as occurring at the time of Herod's death, a lunar eclipse. But thanks to astronomers, we do know when lunar eclipses occurred, and two occurred in 1 B.C., which means Herod may have died in or about 1 B.C. In that case, we have a very interesting chronology that could occur, beginning with Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, somewhat before 1 BC, one, two, maybe three years, I don't know. Then Herod's attempt to kill him, also before 1 BC. The Holy Family's escape into Egypt until after 1 BC. And Jesus coming to be about 30 years old and starting his public ministry in about 26 or 27 AD and lasting three Passovers until, say, 30 AD. That would get you to Nisan 14 in 30 AD, which would have been April 7th. But if you don't like that date and want to extend it to the other date for Nisan 14, April 3rd, 33 AD. You can do that too. 
Not surprisingly, there's no agreement on either of these dates, and you'll find passionate defenses made on one date or the other. So take your pick, say the historians. Jesus' death was either April 7th, 30 AD, or April 3rd, 33 AD. Those dates keep in the same rough time frame, and there's no real certainty yet any for one or the other. Let's get back to our conundrum of the Last Supper then being on Nisan 13 or 14. If you buy the notion that Thursday night was not Nisan 14 and was not Passover, and they were celebrating it a day earlier on Nisan 13, then what the heck were Jesus and his disciples doing? As a friend of mine queries, did someone book the wrong room? Several theories have been advanced to account for this, and none of them is without serious critics. First, there's what we might call the three-day holiday rule. This is familiar to us when, for example, the 4th of July falls on a Saturday or a Sunday. We just make either Friday or Monday a holiday so we can get three consecutive days out of it. So it makes sense that if Passover and the Sabbath fall on the same Friday evening, we should just back up a day and add Thursday to the mix and we'll just all feast on Thursday instead of Friday. Sounds nice. Here's the problem. There's no historical evidence whatsoever to support the theory. Remember, the Pharisees were strict enforcers of the law. They never would have countenanced doing this. And the Sadducees weren't any less strict about these things either. So, nice theory, but no evidence. Then there's what we might call the diaspora theory. The notion is that the Jews from throughout Palestine and elsewhere would calculate their days differently. Some were known to use astronomical calculations to determine feasts, whereas Palestinians used the sighting of the new moon, and that might be sighted differently in different places. But critics observe, why would the priests in Jerusalem defer to them? So again, nice theory, but no evidence. Then there's what we might call the non-meal theory, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were not describing a paschal meal, but a kaddush meal which was a purification meal eaten on the eve of a feast. But you have to then ignore the gospel texts that say pretty clearly it was a paschal meal. Again, nice theory, no evidence. Then there's the Qumran theory. It's based on the notion that Jesus followed the Qumran calendar, which was followed by a sect of Jews known as the Essenians, and that Passover fell on a different day under that calendar which is true. When you wind that calendar back, you get Passover on a Tuesday evening, Wednesday day. That means there were two different Passovers that week and Jesus celebrated the Ascension one. Well, that's a problem for two big reasons. Jesus wasn't an Ascension. And even if he was, then you have a radically different gospel account of what happened on Holy Week. The arrest, Jewish trial, Roman trial, and crucifixion spread over three days that's definitely not the story we get from any of the Gospels, much less from all four. So, nice theory, but no evidence. And good luck trying to reconcile the Gospel accounts on that one. Lastly, there's something called the Galilean theory. It's based on the notion that Galileans got to celebrate Passover early because they were coming a long way away and shouldn't have to stand in lines at the temple to get their lambs the next day. There's a very remote snippet in the Mishnah that touches on this. It concerns a dispute over work stoppage on Passover Eve. 
The Galileans thought it should stop a day earlier because of their location. The Jerusalem authorities said no. The problem is that, again, this dispute did not concern the Passover celebration, only work stoppage regarding it. So again, nice theory, no evidence. I will say that there's an extraordinary account of a vision that Anne Catherine Emmerich had. She's the invalid visionary I mentioned in Lecture 1. In her movie version of The Passion, she says that one of the charges brought against Jesus before the Sanhedrin was that Jesus violated the law because he ate the Passover meal a day early. She says the charge was dropped, though, when Joseph of Arimathea produced an ancient document showing that Galileans had the right to celebrate Passover early because they'd been traveling a long way and it was an accommodation to the early arrivals. This is a really, really nice theory. Here's the problem. No evidence for it. I should hasten to mention that this conundrum was not unknown to the church fathers either, and they wrestled with the problem themselves. St. Thomas Aquinas, whose opinion is always worth starting from, doesn't like putting Passover on Friday night. He reads the synoptic accounts strictly and says that Jesus and his disciples were celebrating the Passover meal on Passover and didn't start a day early because Jesus never omitted any observance of the law. St. John Chrysostom agrees, but says the reason why the high priest didn't enter the praetorium was because they waited a day and planned to eat their Passover meal the next night. St. Thomas disagrees with that as a reason because, as he says, the law is clear in the book of Numbers, chapter 9, that if anyone's prevented from eating the Passover on the 14th day of the first month, then they're to eat it not on the following day, but on the 14th day of the second month. The Greek church fathers thought Passover was Friday night because of what John said. The Latin fathers, St. Augustine and Jerome included, thought Passover was Thursday night and that John's references related to the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. So the combination of these two feasts over the centuries created quite a bit of controversy that continues to this day. So to sum up, where are we on our second of two options here? Was the Last Supper on Passover? Some scholars say the answer is yes, because they read Matthew, Mark, and Luke as authoritative, and they read John as non-historical and figurative. But some scholars say the answer is no, because they read Matthew, Mark, and Luke as referring to the feast and not to the day, and they read John as historical. So you got two logical options here. On the one hand, the gospel accounts are inconsistent, as one or the other is non-historical. Some, of course, find that offensive to text and tradition. On the other hand, one can say the gospel accounts are consistent, but we don't have any evidence yet that would support a theory to reconcile them. Should we care? Father Brown says, no. He thinks the reconciliation theories are, quote, implausible, unnecessary, and misleading. Well, what if we do care? Then Notre Dame theologian John P. Meyer sums it up this way, quote, Knowing he was about to die, Jesus invited his disciples to a last supper of a special kind that involved no specific Jewish ritual, but constituted his farewell. He gave them something new. He gave himself as the true lamb and instituted his Passover, end quote. Pope Benedict XVI, in his very thoughtful trilogy on Jesus of Nazareth, likes this theory. He says the answer is, quote, astonishingly simple and in many respects convincing, end quote. To sum it up, under this latter theory, 
The farewell meal was not the old Passover meal. It was the new one. Jesus did and did not celebrate Passover. The old ritual couldn't be carried out because he died. Under this view, the old meal was not abolished, but fulfilled. In that case, we can accept that Nisan 14 began at sundown on Good Friday. Or you can stand firm that it began at sundown on Holy Thursday. Take your pick. Let's walk with this theory just a bit and return to our scene in Jerusalem where Jesus is hanging on a cross outside the city walls at Golgotha. If the actual feast of Passover was beginning Friday evening, that meant at noon two things are going on. First, the priests were slaughtering lambs at the temple. Customs had changed over the centuries since Passover was established. Under the Levitical rule, the head of household would slaughter the lamb in the evening twilight. But by 1st century AD, the priests did the slaughtering for you at the temple, and they would begin doing so at noon when the sun crossed the meridian and allowed you to consider that time forward in the day as enough of the, quote, evening to allow you to begin preparing for the feast. What I love about the development of doctrine and practice is how it develops organically according to developments in life. It's one thing for Israelites living nomadically in the Sinai Peninsula to be expected, as Leviticus tells them they should do, to kill their own lamb or goat and prepare their Passover meal from start to finish. But after you settle down, get a house, a yard, a job, and other things to do, it's nice to be able to delegate duties to others. Duties like taking your cute little baby lamb out in the yard at evening twilight and slitting its throat in front of your little kids. Um, Rabbi, would you mind if we just pay you a few shekels to do that for us? By first century AD, this is exactly what the priest did for you. You didn't have to kill any lammies yourself, and probably for a few shekels. The lambs were sacrificed in the temple area, and the priests would pour their blood into a basin and then toss it against the altar, over and over again, all afternoon long. Josephus said that on one Passover feast, temple priests sacrificed 256,500 lambs in the course of the afternoon. Many think that's an exaggeration, but... If you had 200 priests doing 1,000 lambs each, you'd be talking about each priest doing 200 in an hour over five hours, which would mean three or four a minute or one every 20 seconds on average. You could start at around 1 p.m., stand everyone in nice tight lines, slit the throats, drain some blood, pass it on, and be done by 6 p.m. before sunset. Remember, you didn't have to gut the thing because you had to roast it whole head and innards all, skin it at another station for some more shekels if you want. And it's only a lammy, not a big sheepy. So it's possible? Well, it's not impossible, I guess, as these guys had to be good with a knife and could work at Benihana's. By the way, if he's right about 256,500 lambs, think what the population in Jerusalem might have been at that time, which included pilgrims from out of town. Under the law, you had to have at least 10 people celebrating the feast with you. And you had to eat the lamb. Had to. It was required. So I'll let you do the math by adding a zero to those numbers. Pretty impressive. Whatever the number, you can't escape this remarkable image. All throughout the day, lambs could be heard bleeding from the temple grounds and from the temple mount all throughout the city 
Merchants were there selling them, people standing in line buying them, priests taking them one by one, slitting their throats, pouring out their blood, splashing the blood on the massive altar at the center, and then handing the carcass back to the buyer to return home for the roasting. Justin Martyr, a second century Christian who lived in the area after the sacking by Rome, said the lambs were roasted on a spit in the form of a cross, in the form of a cross. Who knows if that was a traditional practice from before, pretty astonishing if it was. But I said, there are two things going on from around noon on. One was a sacrificing of lambs. The other thing was that Jesus was dying on the cross. Something that the gospels and traditions say occurred over the course of three hours, from noon to 3 p.m. Lambs bleeding and being sacrificed inside the walls, people being executed outside the walls. Quite the juxtaposition if you stop and think about it, and you'd be hard-pressed to make that up. And just to wrap up one little detail regarding the timing of things and why most theologians accept that Jesus was on the cross from noon until 3, don't be confused by the different references in each of the four Gospels regarding their description of the timing of events. They speak in terms of hours of the day. First hour began at dawn, about 6 a.m. Third hour began at 9 a.m. Sixth hour at noon. Ninth hour at 3. Six to nine, nine to noon, noon to three. First, third, sixth, and ninth. But when you speak of something happening at, say, the third hour, it could mean any part of that hour to them, including the last part of it. It was just their manner of speaking. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say Jesus died at the ninth hour, which is why we say 3 p.m. Luke says it was about the sixth hour when Jesus was crucified. And both he and Matthew say there was darkness over the land from then until the ninth hour. That's how we get noon to three. Mark is the one who implies a longer period because he says it was the third hour when they crucified him, which would put it at 9 a.m., which really doesn't work with all the other activity we mentioned. Interrogation, trips to Herod and back, scourgings, trials of the two thieves going on, etc. But if you understand that the crucifixion process started within the third hour, then it all works. And then this reconciles with John, who says it was about the sixth hour when Pilate announced the sentence. We're all good here, noon to 3 p.m., more or less. Some of you may wish I say a few words about Jesus' actual death. I'm not going to do that. We've already had a doctor at Calvary. We don't need a lawyer there, too. I'm not kidding about the doctor part. In 1953, a French surgeon, Dr. Pierre Barbet, published what has become a very popular book under that same title that studied Jesus' crucifixion from a medical perspective. When you read it, you think he has the definitive medical perspective on Jesus' death. Then you read, among other things, The Physical Death of Jesus Christ, published in 1986 in the Journal of the American Medical Association by Drs. Edwards, Gable, and Hosmer. And you think they have the definitive medical perspective on Jesus' death. And then you read other medical people who weigh in against them and say they have the definitive medical perspective on Jesus' death. Good grief. People say that when you put two lawyers in a room, you get three opinions. But when you put three doctors in a room, you get sick. At least lawyers will change their opinions, especially if you pay them. But doctors are always right, even when they differ. Always. Just ask them.
But here's one aspect about scriptural interpretation that Father Brown makes a good point about. You have to figure out, or try to figure out, what the author is trying to convey and whether the author is intending literal accuracy or something else. And as to the medical causes of Jesus' death, I'm going to stick with the church fathers here who really didn't care a whit about trying to identify those causes and how they squared with what they knew about science then or what we know about science now. They cared about the theological significance of those details. Details like blood and water flowing from the side of Jesus with a soldier's lance. That Jesus' cry of, I thirst, was not due to dehydration, but a yearning for souls to be saved and so forth. That's what they read from the Gospel writers. Sure, we know more about the causes of death now than they did, but those details should be mined from physiology, not scripture. And so I'm not going to address those here. Now, the Holy Shroud is a whole other thing, and I'd love to address that because that's something historical. But I'm not going to talk about that either. It's worth the whole podcast series in itself. So as we reflect on the last moments of Jesus' life and his having been sentenced by proper authority, there's been much that people have pondered over his last words, his seven last words, as they're noted and recorded in the gospel accounts, seven being, of course, the number representing perfection. John ends it simply with these words, quote, When Jesus had taken the wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he handed over the spirit. Many have asked, many have pondered what he meant when he said, It is finished. What was finished? His life? His ministry? His goal? His will? His mission? None of those answers seem terribly satisfying for those who believe he rose from the dead and continued his life, his ministry, his goal, his will, his redemptive mission. But one account that seems to accord with the historical context we've been addressing in this session is that the new Passover meal is now finished. That it began on Thursday night with the meal featuring bread and wine and specific prayers, and it ended with his death on Friday afternoon, just as the Feast of Passover was about to begin. So under that account, the arrest plan had not gone awry. He was arrested and tried before the feast, condemned before the feast, and executed just as the feast was approaching. And, as many Christians now say, going forward from that event, he was the feast, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. In the end, after studying the trial of Jesus Christ, we're left probably with more questions than answers. And that's fine. That's often how our knowledge of things proceeds. Getting answers to some things help us ask more questions about other things. And there are a million and one things I never mentioned, never touched on. Forgive me if I omitted some one thing or another you think I should have addressed. I'd be disappointed if you didn't think of something. We're dealing with the infinite here. I hope that you, like me, will pick back up with some of these questions on your own. For the believer, it's a life quest because knowledge follows love and increases love. When we love someone, we want to know more about them. And when we know more about them, we can love them more. I think a growing understanding of the history of the passion and death of Jesus and of his trial, along with a deeper inquiry into the Gospels themselves, does that. We see, on the one hand, the foibles of human nature, 
that are our foibles too, of stubbornness, pride, envy, cowardice, rashness, vanity. There's much from these accounts that should serve to warn us of our conduct and how we approach problems in life, big ones or small ones. And we see, on the other hand, Jesus' reaction to all of this through quietness, calmness, humility, charity, and firmness. This too is a lesson for us as we face our own trials in life, big ones and small ones. And through this all, I think, we can see the hand of providence at work, and that bad things, horrible things, like the trial and sentence of Jesus Christ, can lead, in fact, to very good things. St. Paul sums all this up rather nicely in his letter to the Romans. Yes, the very Romans we've been talking about throughout this lecture, although these were Romans living in Jerusalem in about the year 55 to 57. And so I'd like to end on that here. In chapter 8 of that letter, he says, quote, We know that all things, let me repeat, all things, good things and bad things, as St. Augustine reminds us. We know that all things, he says, work for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, even the trial of Jesus Christ. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast series, please share a review on iTunes to help spread the word and spread links to your friends and family. And peace be with you.